Have you ever felt stuck or trapped somewhere? you ever been lost on a path? My children like to remind me of various times uh, when we've gone hiking and the maps that the West Virginia State Park offers uh, are often vague. Uh, and sometimes they mark the trees and sometimes those trees fall down or get chopped down and the marks, you know, don't do it. And then deer follow different paths than people follow one time, Kanawha State Forest. Made our way up the mountain, kept looking at the map. Where are we? Where are we going? And then there's this question, do we go forward more? That's what I attempted for a while. Do we go back like your children are begging you to do? It's hot, they're thirsty, we'll never get home. That wasn't going to be true. I knew, I knew where we were, I just didn't know the best way to get back to where we were going. It's very dad-like, isn't it? But we do that question, like which direction do we go? Push forward, retreat, fall backward. Perhaps you felt this way physically. Uh, Perhaps you felt this way emotionally. Do you ever feel stuck in something, unsure of which way to go? As, As Christians, we recognize everything in our lives has a spiritual element to it. Whatever is not of faith is sin, and the Bible is sufficient for all of life. So in every decision that we have to make, right, the Bible speaks to that. Uh, but, but what does it say? It's sufficient, but is it specific to everything in your life? Peter Ambler, when you're at lost in Kanawha State Forest, you should continue. You should turn back. It doesn't say that. Right? And sometimes we're left with the, the question, what does faith look like in this particular scenario? I think often we're left with that question of like, okay, I want to act in faith, but what, what does that mean? Uh, if you lose your job, you can look to the Bible for wisdom. On the one hand, it says work diligently to provide for yourself and your family. Okay. But then on the other hand, it says Christians are to meet the needs of their brothers and sisters. So is, right, what, should I receive this, this gift? Should I, should I not? Two, two truths, which way is faith in this? Uh, Proverbs 26, 4, don't answer a fool according to their folly. Oh, okay, that's easy. Keep your mouth shut. Proverbs 26, 5, do answer a fool according to their folly. Wait, what? So which one is it? Well, sometimes we lack wisdom as to knowing which exactly is the direction that we're supposed to take, right? Not every scenario is just like, well, should I murder this person? Should I not murder this person? This is like, you should not murder this person. Murder's wrong. But not every scenario is that clear. When we see a brother or sister caught in a sin, a brother and sister sins against us, we should lovingly confront them for their good, except that love keeps no record of wrong, thinks no evil, and covers a multitude of sins. So in this scenario, which one is it? And we feel stuck. Which way are we supposed to go? There's an author wrote about our passage today. It is hard sometimes to know whether faith should act or whether faith should wait. Because sometimes that's the answer. There's not just a move forward. There's not just a move backward. Sometimes we're just stuck. Sometimes being stuck is exactly what God has for us. We're in Genesis chapter 16 this morning. Please turn in your copy of God's Word to Genesis 16 so you can follow along with this. This story focuses first on Abram's wife, Sarai, then zooms in on Sarai's servant, Hagar. And we're going to look at these two women and the hard times, suffering that they faced, and we're going to see how they responded. And then, where I think where this story really wants us to to sit. It's where the story sits. We just follow, what should we talk about with this passage? Whatever the passage talks about. Right? So we're going to see how God responds to Hagar. And I believe that the heart of this passage is going to be asking this question for us as God's people, right? Where is the Lord in hard times? That's a question that rises when we're stuck, right? Not just like, what, what should we do? It's like, oh, I lack wisdom. Okay, well, when I lack wisdom, I ask God for wisdom. But when that wisdom doesn't immediately come, you still feel stuck. And hard times puts that type of pressure on us, physical, right, emotional, spiritual, all sorts of different trials or sufferings, all sorts of different definitions of hard times, and then we cry out with that question, well, where is God? Where is the Lord in hard times? Genesis 16, 
take this in, in two sections. First, verses 1 through 6. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she, Hagar, saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Interesting in trying to think through this passage, understand pieces of it, a passage that I've read a bunch of times, but never really stopped to consider very carefully until this week. Um, thinking about Hagar, right? Hagar's an Egyptian. Well, Abram and Sarai had been to Egypt, remember? Uh, Abram let Pharaoh take Sarai as, his, as a, another wife to his harem and those type of things. And then in the, the aftermath of that, uh, they got rich and they got servants, male servants and female servants and donkeys and camels and oxen, all this sort, right? All these different types of wealth they got from those type of things. So it's, it's very likely, I mean, it, maybe it doesn't matter. It's just one of those details I think is interesting. Uh, it very likely could be that Hagar was one of those servants, that was given to Sarai as she left Pharaoh's house. There are different levels of servants in households. Um, she would have been kind of the primary servant to Sarai, not, not, not a lowly, it's like the main one who took care of her primarily. Um, in thinking about that, while Abram and Sarai, the text keeps reminding us how old they are, uh, there's really no reason to believe that Hagar's old. Like that actually wouldn't make any sense at all. You would want a young servant brought into your household to serve you, right? If you lack energy, you want someone with energy. And so it's likely that she's a young woman. Maybe at this point, if, uh, let's say they've had, she's had her for about 10 years. I don't think that she's older than maybe her early 20s at this point. And Sarai's barren. Abram has no children. The text tells us something that, that they don't know, that it's Sarah. She's the one. So she offers her servant to her husband as a child-bearing wife. Um, using a servant or a slave wife, kind of this sort of what we'll eventually call concubine, right, as we read through the rest of the Old Testament. Using that slave wife as a surrogate mother, we know what that means, right? Family can't get pregnant, so they use a surrogate to get pregnant, then the child becomes theirs. Still a practice that's, that's done, uh, not like this. Uh, but this, using a slave wife as a surrogate mother, was a very, very common practice in surrounding civilizations around this time. So it's not like Sarah's idea. She's like, you know what we should do, right? This was common, common in Babylonia and uh, in Babylon and in Assyria. There are a bunch of ancient documents that talk about how this is supposed to work. And so where they adopted that practice, it's like, well, probably for generations at this point, this is just what was done. If a child was born to Hagar, the child would not be counted as Hagar's. It would actually be Sarai's child, Abram and Sarai, right? That's how that surrogacy works. Sarah would have claimed it as her, her own. Although the Lord never comments on the choice that Sarai makes that Abram goes along with, right? We kind of want to know right or wrong, right? Should this have happened? What is this teaching us about surrogacy or marriage or slavery? But the Lord makes no comment on it. it, sort of happens and moves on. But there do appear to be connections between this event and the fall, uh, the curse spoken back in the garden. Do you remember that? Back in Genesis 3, God said to Adam, because you listened to the voice of your wife, and then we see that here, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And then what did Sarai do? Well, she took Hagar the Egyptian and gave, it to, gave her to her husband. 
like Eve took and gave to her husband. But I mean, I know, we know that every time a wife has listened to the voice of her husband, it's always gone well. Right? So let's not take the lessons the text isn't teaching, but there is this type of thing, right? The fall continues to repeat itself. For decades, decades, Sarai has borne the weight, the hurt, and the shame of her childlessness. They had a much better view of children than our society does. Some couples would view it just as a blessing for decades of marriage with no children. They had no sense of that. So she's bearing this weight. She sees it on herself, right? Just time after time, 10 years after the promise had even been made, still no children. So she suggests the alternative of Hagar. We don't know exactly what Sarai's thinking in this. But I wonder if she hoped it wouldn't work. Maybe. You ever want something to work, but you also want it to not work? With no apparent difficulty. I mean, the way that the text reads with this instantaneous, it's like it's their first time. Move on. No apparent difficulty. Hagar gets pregnant. And when Hagar gets pregnant, right, it's not just a cause of rejoicing. Oh, how wonderful. Now there will be an heir. But now, in Sarai's perspective, all doubt has been removed that the problem was her. Right? In all of these decades of marriage, maybe Abram is sterile. He's not sterile. Right? We know from the text what this is, but Abram and Sarah don't know these things. All they know is they're not having children. So Sarai presents this opportunity, this alternative. Immediately, she gets pregnant. Uh, work with wood, do all sorts of different stuff. Uh, been whittling recently. And uh, so that means that not just splinters, but I just cut myself with all sorts of things. My hands are always injured. It's a big concern, especially to, to Lily. She loves me. So she's always wondering why my hands are bleeding and, and broken. I've got a cut right here uh, from my whittling knife. Uh, I love guacamole. Love guacamole. Yeah, love guacamole. It's like, well, you've got to make guacamole with fresh ingredients, right? So you've got a fresh avocados, right? And fresh cilantro and fresh what else for good guacamole? Come on. Lime, right? So if we were making guacamole this afternoon, Leanne often has me make guacamole. So if I was making guacamole, we had those limes, and I'm squeezing that out. What's that, what's that going to feel like on that little cut right here and that part of my hand that I'm going to use all the time? Boy, that's going to sting, right? Sometimes with like lemon, in, right? lemon juice, lime juice, or we talk about salt in a wound. Sarah has been bearing a wound of childlessness, and now she finds out, right, She's the problem, and now she has a rival wife who's pregnant. It's salt in the wound. Insult added to injury of how Sarah's pain was made so much worse with Hagar's pregnancy. Verse 4, the way that the ESB has that, right? She saw she had conceived. Hagar looked with contempt on her mistress. Uh, there's a, there's a question here, and I don't know that it necessarily changes it. It's like, well, who's to blame? We kind of want to know those questions. Who's acting right? Who's acting wrong? Um, but regardless of what Hagar is doing, because Sarah sees herself as lowered, right? Is it just like, hey, time to make my breakfast? Be like, mm, breakfast, I can't, I can't do breakfast, right? Morning sickness, I'm sorry. Can you make, can you make me breakfast, actually, today, Right? Some of you are like, what are you talking about, right? That's the interplay between Sarah and Hagar in my, in my weird imagination, right? Or is it just kind of like, well, actually, I was talking to Abram the other day, and he said, we're going to do this. And Sarah's like, you were talking to Abram. What? You, that's not what you're supposed to be doing with Abram, right? All this different things. But she sees herself, right? She's the wife, and then Hagar's the servant. And now she's kind of like, wait a minute. What's happening here? How much does Hagar be like, well, I'm the childbearing wife? How much does Sarah be like, what's going to happen from this? This young, now pregnant servant girl is going to take my place? It's like even though she expected her to, hoped in some sense to get her pregnant, to have a child through her, Sarah never expected Hagar to be raised above her. 
Proverbs 30, verse 23, I wonder if uh, the author of Proverbs had this in mind, this story, speaks to this. Under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king, a fool when he is filled with food, an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. When you've been commanded to do things, and now you're giving the commands, that's never pretty. Sarai feels this, and she could not bear up under this. This will not be the way that this proceeds. So she complains to Abram and blames him for this fiasco, and he then hands it back over to her. Well, kind of like, well, Abram, what are you going to do about this? She's all uppity. It's like, well, she's your servant. She's your slave. Do to her as you please. There's a potential where she's like, do what seems good to you. Do the right thing to her. Well, what pleased Sarai, what was good in her eyes, was to abuse Hagar. She dealt harshly with her to remind her who was mistress and who was servant. She wanted to put Hagar back in her proper place. Isn't it so easy to take our hurt and our resentment and our anger out on someone else? In responding to this heavy-handed treatment, Hagar runs away. And you probably have a few questions, questions that I would have as well. Uh, you know, oh, hey, hey, is slavery right or wrong? Right? Is polygamy, multiple wives, is that right or wrong? Why, why is Abram so passive? What is this about? Is this about slavery? Is this about polygamy? Is this about husbands listening or not listening to their wives and offering leadership? It's like, that's not what the text is about at all. Like, the text is not concerned with any of those questions that we come to. So we have to ask, what are the text's questions? So we can get the text's answers. And this text is concerned with the most unlikely character. All these passages have been about who so far? 12, 13, 14, 15. Who's it been about? Abraham. Abram. Right? God said to Abram, and Abram did this, and then Abram and Lot, and then God comes to, and then Abram rescues, and then and God talks to Abram again, and then it's just like, but now Sarah, Sarai, like, okay, Sarai's Abram's wife. I'm with you. I understand why we're doing this. Okay, and now Hagar. Like, is this some sort of like a footnoted story? Like, what is this? Why? But it is clear, right, that this is the focus of these type of things. The text is concerned with an abused, pregnant Egyptian slave girl. That's not likely to me. But it is what God has to say. Verses 7 through 16. We'll pick up where we left off. The angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Right at the offset of verse 7, we meet a new character. Who's this new character that we met, that we meet? Front of verse 7. The angel of the Lord, or the angel of 
Yahweh. Now, angel can be a specific term like we normally think of, right? Six wings, two they fly, two they cover their face, two they cover their feet. The cherubim or the seraphim, right? These different messengers of God. But as a messenger, that's really what the word means. So, so angel can sometimes be that specific angel, right? Angels versus demons type of a thing. We see that throughout scripture, but the word itself can't just mean, right, just messenger or representative, So without tracing this through the whole Old Testament, we can see from here that whoever this is comes from God, right? The angel of the Lord, the angel from the Lord, speaking not just on behalf of the Lord, but speaking as the Lord. And there's a big difference there, isn't it? So this isn't a messenger, just a messenger who's from the Lord. This is actually a messenger who is the Lord giving God's message as God. And we see that in how Hagar responds as well. Not you are from the God who sees me, but the one who spoke to her, she responds, you are the God who sees me. So, this, so there's a difference across the Old Testament between an angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord. And a lot of times you can see the difference in how they respond to people. Everybody wants to worship all of these glorious beings. But angels always say, no, 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 don't worship me. This angel, the angel of the Lord, receives that type of worship in a number of different scenarios by this. So if we combine this with the rest of Scripture, a messenger from God who is himself God, who is this? This is who we would know as Jesus. This is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God. Even before God the Son was born and called Jesus, he existed eternally as God. But even before he appeared as a human to make God known, he was already appearing as the visible representative of the Godhead. Whenever anyone sees God across the Old Testament, they're seeing the second person of the Trinity. No one has ever seen God, we would read about in the Old Testament, but the Son of God, Jesus, the Christ, he's the one who makes God known. We have seen him, and in seeing him, we see God, and we see that all the way back here, starting into those things. So it's always been God, the Son, who reveals God and makes God known to his people. So that's who this is. We'll just say, who is this? It's God. The angel of the Lord is an appearance of God himself. What does God do to Hagar? Well, the angel of the Lord found her. Hagar did not run away into the wilderness to find God. She just ran away. And we don't know where this place, this shore is, but it's probably she's running back to Egypt. I'm not going to stay here. I'm going to go back and find her family. I don't know but I'm going to go back to somewhere else that I know. I don't want to be here anymore. But God searched for her and found her. This was intentional on God's part. This was not accidental. It's not like God is also just sort of wandering through the wilderness and be like, oh, who are you? (laughs) That's not how God works right? God doesn't do anything by accident. He just doesn't happen to be wandering somewhere. And we see that in the life of Jesus as well. He doesn't just accidentally come across people, right? This is intentional. God was searching for Hagar. He went to her and he found her. Abram should have cared enough to go after her. He obviously didn't, but God did care enough about Hagar to go after her. He is a God who always finds the one that he searches for. The Lord searches for her. The Lord finds her. The Lord knows her. The Lord knows her specifically because he he calls her by name. Eli, isn't a name a powerful thing? What do you think about that, Michaela? Hearing your name draw attention to that? They're powerful things. And God calls her by name. Hagar, servant of Sarai. I know that this passage is not exactly what this verse is talking about. But I was reminded, as we're learning about who God is, Isaiah 43, verse 1, God reminds his people of this same personal truth. 
I see this is who God is in the life of Hagar. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, did God create Hagar? He who formed you, O Israel, did God form Hagar? Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Do you see that playing out in the life of this abused, pregnant Egyptian slave girl? One author pointed out that this is the only known instance in all ancient Near Eastern literature, right? So everywhere the, the Bible takes place, it's called the ancient Near East. Far East is China, Near East, Israel, Babylon, Egypt, okay? And we have a lot of literature from all that different period, Babylonian documents, Assyrian documents, all sorts of different things that you can find, chiseled on stone, written on papyrus, all this, right? Archaeological finds, coming up with all sorts of stuff. This is the only instance in ancient Near Eastern literature where the deity addresses a woman by name. But somehow it's the God of the Bible who hates women. It's not true. She is the lowest of the low in the society. God goes after her, and God knows her, and God calls her by name. Because this is who God is. Regardless of how Abram and Sarai view her or how she views herself, God knows she's important because, Genesis 1, 27, she bears his image. And this is true of you as well. God is your creator. You bear his image, and he knows your name. And he knows what's going on in your life. Then the Lord asked her questions. The Lord always is asking questions, right? And Jesus was always asking questions. He doesn't ask questions because he doesn't know the answer. He asks questions to draw out from the person, right? What did God do with Adam and Eve when he showed up in the garden? Why are you hiding? Hey, where are you? Hello? <laughs> did God know where they were? Did God know what they had done? God asks questions to draw the truth out of them, right? He does the same thing. Hey, where, are, where, where have you come from? Where are you going? Drawing out what's going on. Then the Lord gives her this difficult command. She says what is going on. She admits that to the Lord. And then verse 9, the angel of the Lord, God himself says to this one that he searched for, found, knows, return to your mistress and submit to her. Put, put yourself back underneath her hand. She's in your hand, Abram said, and she gets out from under that hand. And in this submission, God is saying, go back under that hand. A difficult command. But then the Lord makes an amazing promise to her. Verse 10, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. This is another remarkable aspect of this, that Hagar is the only woman in Genesis who is honored with such a revelation about descendants. Like what God had said to Abram, and he's going to say to Isaac, and he's going to say to Jacob, he never says it to Sarai. He never says it to Rebekah. He never says it to Rachel or Leah. He says it to Hagar. I'm going to multiply your descendants. That's an incredible promise of these type of things. God speaks to Hagar before he speaks to Sarah. The God of Abraham, the God of, God of Abraham promised blessing to a Gentile slave woman. Right? Foreshadowing much? Pushing us forward to who God is and what he will do, this promise that will be for the nations and not just for the important people in those nations. Hagar is the, also the only character in all of the Old Testament to name God. God reveals himself to a lot of different people. And we read about these different names, these different places. But Hagar is like, here's what I'm going to call you. And it's in scripture. So do you think that God was like, no, that's not who I am? Is that what Moses is communicating to us, that Hagar was wrong in calling God this? Clearly not. She called God by this name. You are a God of seeing. Or like it says in the 
the footnotes here of the ESV, you are a God who sees me. She's amazed and she's shocked by this whole encounter. She recognizes the grace that has been shown to her in God looking after her, of God seeing her. And then the spring of water, this well that would be built here in the middle of this desert, the well where God met her and she saw God would be called Beir Lahai Roy. And it has literally nothing to do with beer. If you're like, what is this doing about beer? Right? It's not what it says. If, if it makes you feel better, you could pronounce it Be'er, okay? Because that's more closely to the Hebrew. It just happens to use the same letters that happens in languages. There are only so many sounds. It's just the word for well in the Hebrew language. The well of the living one who sees me. That's what this verse 14, the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy, the well of the living one who sees me. And the name's stuck. So Hagar does return to her husband, Abram, and her mistress, Sarai. And she gave birth to a son, Abram's son. And in keeping with the Lord's command to Hagar, Abram called the name of his son Ishmael. God had told that to Hagar. And then Abram uses the name. So Hagar must have told Abram, this is what happened, right? This is what, is it days? Is it weeks? How long has she gone? Then she comes back and is like, hey, where were you? What happened? Like, well, the Lord appeared to me. The God who's been speaking to you, he spoke to me. He told me to come back. He told me that I'm actually pregnant with a son for you, and we're supposed to call his name Ishmael. And you know what Ishmael means? It means the Lord hears God hears because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And then notice that she remains in different passages as she's talked about. She, she, Hagar, always remains Sarai's servant. She's always Hagar the slave. She never moves beyond that. She always retains kind of that dual aspect of that. But Ishmael is not slave Ishmael. He's son Ishmael. Now, later in the text, we know he's not going to be the son of promise. We're going to find that out in the next chapters. But he is the son of Abram. And the blessings that God had promised do come to pass for him. How do Sarah, Sarai, and Hagar respond? We see both of them experiencing hard times here, right? That's not a stretch. Neither of them are really excited with how things are going in their lives right now. Is it, is it easy? Is it, is it clear to be like they're going through hard times? Yes. Well, what about for Sarai? For Sarai, her difficulty, her, her trial, this hard time for her was the longstanding suffering of barrenness, which had only been made harder by God's recurring promise to her husband about children and descendants that she couldn't offer to him, that she could not provide. And that only worsened with the knowledge of her rival's pregnancy. So is Sarah going through a hard time? Yes. For Hagar, the hard time she's facing is this suffering of mistreatment from Sarai's hands. Is she suffering? Yes. And they both respond in natural and understandable ways. But they both are responding according to what we could call a worldly wisdom. Right? They're both stuck. Sarai is stuck in her barrenness and now the fact of Hagar's pregnancy. But she responds to her hard time of suffering with, with an active attitude. I've got to fix this. She wants to fix her barrenness by offering Hagar. And then she needs to fix Hagar's pregnancy by kicking Hagar out of the house, right? Abusing her to what? To the point of death? To the point of her running away? Like, what was her goal here? Well, whatever it was, she's very active in it. She's going to do something about this. She's not going to stay stuck. And then Hagar responds to her hard time of suffering with a little bit more, there's some activity to this, but there's a passivity to it as well, right? If, if, if Sarah says, I'm going to fix this, Hagar says, I've got to flee from this. I've got to get out of here. Both of these responses are common, aren't they? When we're stuck, we don't want to be stuck. I don't want to be trapped. So I'm going to do something. I'm going to move forward. I'm going to move backward, but I've got to move. 
And neither of these responses are automatically wrong. But both fixing, right, and fleeing can show a lack of faith. In fact, they can both be responses driven by worldly wisdom. Even just the worldly wisdom of, I have to do something about this. I have to move forward. I have to move backward. It depends on me. Do you see the lack of faith that's in that? Both of them, right, are stuck in where God wants them to be, and both of them are like, that's not where I'm going to be. We do the same things, that which makes sense to us naturally, that which is recommended or demonstrated by the unbelievers around us, right? Fix or flee. Do something about it or, or get out of there. There's never a worldly wisdom of just, just sit. Just wait. Fixing and fleeing. Probably we each tend to one of those more than the other. And I wonder which of them do you tend toward more readily? We have conflicts in our marriages. What happens when we have that, right? We feel stuck in that. Is it attack? I'm going to fix? Or is it kind of like, I'm just going to tuck back, disappear, or I'm just going to leave? And I'm not talking about that type of a physical abuse. We're not even getting into that. Just the regular aspects of it. Problem with my spouse, I've got spouse, I've got to fix. Or it's just like I've got to withdraw. And sometimes that, like, withdrawing into a manipulation type of an idea, right? Just like, we're going to figure out, we're going to solve. This applies to friendships as well. You see your friend caught up in a sinful pattern. Do you fly straight at him, drop a few Bible verse, like, truth bombs, and then fly away, glad you could be such a helpful servant of the Lord? Oh, I'm not sure what's going to, you know, it's like this sickness, this job thing, this is going on with this. Oh, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request be known to God. You're welcome. Or are you more tempted to make so many excuses for your friend's sin that you never say anything to them? You ever feel stuck in that type of a scenario? You can see something, certainly seems like, what do I do? Is this a bear up and suffer alongside of them in silence, like the only good thing that Job's friends did, or is this a time to speak? We feel stuck. Parents, we may try to crush our children's disobedience, crush their spirits. They'll only do anything that I want them to do. Force of voice, force of anger. Right? Punishment in anger, right? Or we'd be like, no, 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 I'm not going to fix them. I just need to, oh, I'm going to coddle them. Oh, poor little Tommy. He had a hard day. Mm. Well, I know, but his friend said this, and he didn't get a nap, and he didn't have his snack today, and, and it's probably my fault. Oh, poor Tommy. And we refuse to correct, and we refuse to discipline, right? So it's like, oh, I'm just not going to flee. I'm going to flee. We can think about that in, in uh, ministry gospel type things too, right? Seeking to manipulate unbelievers with clever techniques. I'm going to fix their unbelief. Can't fix someone's unbelief. It's God's work. Right? Or we're going to just soften the gospel to where really they probably already believe it anyway. We're not just going to sit in the reality of tension that we can't do anything on our own. Right? That, that's, that's the scenarios I'm trying to paint. I don't know what that looks like in your life. But right, sometimes we're stuck because God wants us to be stuck. And Sarai was stuck because God wanted her there. And then Hagar is as well. And we can learn from the example of Sarai, Hagar, what we're not to do. It's not always solve the problem. It's not always fix. And it's not always flee. Sometimes it is just wait it was not God's will for Sarai to fix the hard time of her barrenness. It was not what he wanted her to do. He, she should have waited on the Lord to solve that problem, waited on the Lord to fulfill his promise to her. It was also not God's plan for Hagar to flee the hard time that she experienced from Sarai's hand. He called her to return and to wait for his promises to be fulfilled. But while we are stuck 
When we are trapped, while we wait for the Lord, we ask this question, where, where is the Lord in hard times? I don't, I don't like waiting for anything. Do you, do you like waiting? I lived about, well, we lived six miles or so from the office that I worked at in, in seminary, and we had one car because we did not have a lot of money. The Lord was gracious to us, but we did not have enough money for a second car. And if I'm going to sit in an office and Leanne's going to be driving around doing errands, who gets the car? Leanne gets the car, and if the groceries took longer than expected, so I got a bike because a bike was cheaper than a car, and then I didn't have to wait. So I drove home, rode home through the rain, even if it took longer, so that I didn't have to wait the extra 5, 10, or 15 minutes for her. I don't like waiting, right? Sitting still and doing nothing, right? Two-day shipping for Amazon Prime. And sometimes that's still just like, oh, two days? And I could drive to Walmart, then I'd have to get in the car. I hate getting in the car. Wait for that. Instant streaming. What do you mean I have to wait for it to download? I should get an upgrade to my internet service. Fast food. That burger took you two minutes longer than it did yesterday. You're going to be hearing on my customer survey. Text messages. It's like, I don't want to call. It'll take too much time. Like, have they read the message? Why haven't they answered? Right now, 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 now. I'm not going to wait for anything. We're not awaiting people, are we? We're not. But no matter how many services in our lives speed up, right? Same day shipping, same moment shipping, teleportation shipping, right? However fast the internet gets, however fast our cars get, Whatever else happens, we will never speed up and force the Lord to work according to our schedule. That will never happen. And he is not slow to fulfill his promises like, oh, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I'm not sure how, oh man, this is a hard one. Or like, oh, I'm sorry, Marianne, I just forgot that you had that prayer request. That's not how he acts. That's not who God is. He's not slow, but he does act according to his timeline. He does not feel rushed. I don't want to wait, and so I will rush, because if I don't want to wait on you, I don't want you to wait on me. So I'm going to rush, and I'm going to act, and I'm going to do, and God does not feel that pressure. Now, what will Timothy think of me if I take days, weeks, months, years to answer this prayer request? God is not rushed. He's not like us in that way. When we want or need something from God, which becomes especially clear during hard times of trial and suffering, he often calls on us to wait, to stay right where we are, without fixing it, without fleeing from it, to be patient and to rest and be at peace, his peace, rest in his control and to wait. Stay stuck. Remain trapped while you wait for the Lord to deliver you. And the silence of waiting can be deafening, can't it? And that's exactly the time in that silence, maybe it's one of the reasons that we're so scared of silence. Our culture is allergic to silence. 30-second wait and pull out a phone. Got to get the noise. Got to get some information. Can't sit and process anything. And sometimes when we're waiting on the Lord in this way, the silence of waiting, the silence of what is God going to answer and when is he going to answer. And sometimes when we're in the midst of that, that's prime time for lies and doubts to slither into our hearts and minds. Lies like God's forgotten about you. That's why you're waiting. He doesn't see your suffering. He doesn't hear your prayers. He doesn't know, and he doesn't care. It's a lie, isn't it? Because what is the truth? We see it right here in this passage. God knows about our hard times. God sees. You are the God who sees me. God hears because the Lord has listened to your affliction. If he sees what's happening, he hears your cries. Does God know? 
Does God know about your hard times? Yes. God knew everything that was going on with Sarah. God knew everything that was going on with Hagar. He had seen, he had heard. He hears the cries of our hearts, not just the cries of our lips. Sometimes the cry can't even, can't even verbalize it. God hears that nonetheless. You are a God who sees me, saw her suffering. God knew what Hagar was going through. He had not forgotten about her. I don't think Hagar even expected God to know anything about her. Why would God know anything about her? Isn't he the God of more important people? We could say the same thing, right? It's like, well, sure, God knows about this person in the Bible or this person in church history. Maybe God just knows about pastors. Maybe God knows about elders or deacons. Maybe God knows about other people, but he doesn't know about me. That's a lie. Like, there's no more unlikely character in this story than Hagar. And yet she's the one that God shows up to. It's an amazing story. There's another lie. It's a lie that God can't stop this. Right? That lie is like, oh, if God could do something about this, he would. Oh, don't you hear that a lot? If, if God could do something about this, he would, but I mean, I guess he can't. God can't stop your suffering, or he would. That is a lie, as if the best God can do is feel sorry for us. That, what's the truth? It's a hard truth. A hard truth that God controls our hard times. What does that look like? It means that God sends our hard times. It means that God ordains, as in has planned beforehand and brought into accomplishment the suffering in your life. That's why all these songs led us to that, right? The hares, the birds, whatever else. God controls your suffering. That's a big one. This lie feels safer. It feels nicer. It's an easier pill to swallow than the truth. But I, I firmly believe that the scriptures do not allow us to say anything other than this second statement. And this passage tells us. What what does it say in verse 2? Why hasn't Sarai had any children, according to verse 2? Because the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Do you think she's right or do you think she's wrong? The Bible doesn't allow us to hold a partial sovereignty of God. It is not more comforting to pretend that suffering happens outside of God's plan and control. Big suffering. It's not more comforting to know that. This Sarah's barrenness was no accident. It was part of God's plan. Now, this does not mean that Sarai's barrenness is a punishment for a sin that she has committed. I think it's more in line with Jesus' answer to the man born blind. His disciples were like, oh, what's the sin? And Jesus says, no sin. He's been blind for decades so that the works of God can be displayed in him. It was a setup for Jesus. That's sovereignty, right? That's the soli deo gloria, the the thing that matters is Jesus displaying his glory after decades of suffering. Sarai's barrenness is this glorious setup for what's going to happen into chapter 17 and 18. We're not the queens of our chessboard. We're pawns, and he moves us wherever he wants And he puts us into dangerous positions to accomplish his purposes. God controls our suffering. And Sarai's extended barrenness to the point of 90 years old was to emphasize just how miraculous the birth of Isaac would be as the son of promise. And the second example is even harder. Verse 9. Return to your mistress and submit to her. Are we to expect that Sarah just had a change of heart? That she feels really bad about what she did to Hagar? 
and she wants to honor her in her pregnancy now? Do we think that that happens? Is there any reason in the text or in our understanding of human nature to think that that's the case? It's not. Go back to being mistreated. Who told her that? God told her that. Go back into this hardship. Go back to this abuse. You fled suffering, I'm going to put you back into the the, the midst of it. Go back to your abusive mistress who hates you. Because we think that the only good is to be found is in health and prosperity and ease and comfort and quick solutions, but God does not think that. Sometimes, often, maybe, the Lord keeps us in trials and suffering for days, weeks, months, years, decades, while other trials in our lives or other people come and go, deliverance comes for others, and we stay in the thick of it. We remain trapped with no answer from the Lord. Why? He knows that trials produce spiritual maturity. Trials are necessary for the training and discipline of his children. And as a good father, God brings trials and sufferings into our lives or puts us into trials and suffering and hardship because he loves us. That's the message of Scripture. What? Because that addresses the next lie. God doesn't love you. God's left you. You're alone. You're abandoned, and the truth is so sweet. It's in contrary to this, the contradiction to this lie. You, God has abandoned you? No. Actually, God meets us in our hard times. God met Hagar in a way that he would not have met her if it had not been for that suffering. That's the truth of Scripture. God meets us in our hard times. God hears, and he sees, he knows, and he cares, and he brings suffering into our lives so that he can meet us there. Such as that God doesn't care about us as those pawns, setting us up. It's not like we're disposable. It's actually that God puts us into hard scenarios because that's exactly the place where we will meet him because he will be there for us. God meets us in those places. We often don't even look for God unless we're suffering. When the sun's shining, the kids are behaving, marriage is good, bank account's full, bills are paid, got a nice meal. How often we're just kind of like, I guess I don't really need God today. That's the reality of life in a fallen world. Oh, I forgot to pray. Why? Well, just because I only had things that I was thankful for. And I think I probably deserve those. But then, right, stormy and sick, and the kids are sick. Everybody's sick. There's no money in the bank account. All the bills need to be paid. Job is terrible. Then all of a sudden, it's like, Lord, I need you. Exactly. Exactly. You do need him. You needed him both times, but you only saw that you needed him in the hard times, and that's where God meets us. He brings suffering into our lives so that he can meet us there. Remember who it was that came to Hagar. It was the angel of the Lord. This is Christ. What did Hagar know about God from living in Abram's household? We have no idea. But because of the suffering that she experienced, she met the God who came and found her. And that's an amazing picture of grace that God would come to those in need. Has God come to those in need? God literally came, was being made a human. He didn't just come to observe our suffering, to meet us in our suffering. He entered into our suffering, became a human just like we are human, right? Christ, the angel who appeared to Hagar, came to suffer alongside of us and then to suffer the wrath of God in our place. God meets us in our sufferings. Jesus is the perfection of that. We see God coming to meet his people in suffering all through the Old Testament. All of that leads us to Jesus. I mean, think about, this is another passage, John chapter 11. Remember John chapter 11, great passage. Jesus had a best friend who wasn't his disciples. His best friend's name was Lazarus. Lazarus had two sisters. Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick. That's no big deal. Jesus has healed all sorts of sick people. Sometimes he heals them by touching them. Sometimes he heals them by talking to them. Sometimes he heals them by just being like, yep, they're healed. And it just happens. Jesus isn't limited at all. He's God. 
What does he do for Lazarus? Nothing. Jesus waits and makes Lazarus and Mary and Martha, his sister, Lazarus' sisters, likely living in dependence on Lazarus for their well-being. He makes them wait, stuck, watching their brother die, and he dies. And it's what? I think it says it's four days later that Jesus finally shows up. And then Jesus goes to Mary. He knows her name. He finds her. He hears from her. He goes to Martha. Same question. Here's the same. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Why did you wait? Why did you make me wait? Why did you leave us stuck in this? Our brother is dead. Jesus went and met both of them in their suffering and says the same truth to both of them. It's like you need to trust in me. Then Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He created the scenario of suffering in their lives so he could meet them and that they would worship him as the one who raises from the dead. That's good for them. It's good for us. Jesus knew suffering. Jesus loves us in our suffering. Jesus, God still meets us in our suffering. The Holy Spirit has come as a helper, a comforter. What's this final lie? The final lie is that God has failed. Where is the Lord in hard times? Well, God has failed you. That's the lie. The truth is that God is faithful to keep his promises. When we wait on the Lord in hard times, he is always faithful to meet us. It just doesn't happen on our schedule happens on his schedule. Chapter 16, we see the first part of the fulfillment of God's promise. Well, you're going to bear a son, call his name Ishmael. And what happens at the end of chapter 16? She bore a son, named him Ishmael. Promise fulfilled, what, seven months after the first? We don't know, right? Normal term of a pregnancy. And then later in chapter 5, we're going to read of 12 sons of Ishmael. They're called princes. I'm going to multiply your descendants. God did. He was faithful to his promise to her. And as for Sarai, God is still setting her up for the fulfillment of his promise to Abram. He's still going to be setting it up in chapter 17. And then it's going to be fulfilled. Chapter 21, which is 13 years after this passage. God's fulfillment for Sarai, he's not done. Her suffering's not over. For us, we're promised that hard times in this life are not the end of the story. That's a promise that God makes to us. So many times God has delivered his people from the hard times that we go through in this life, but even when he doesn't, even when we face death, that's still not the end of our story. In fact, dying is gain for us if we trust in Christ. For in death... There's deliverance from all suffering, and we will know God like we have never known him before. We will see the one who sees us. We will meet face to face the God who has met us, and we'll be with him forever. So what, time, what, what hard times are, are you going through? Maybe I know some of the details, and maybe no one knows any of the details, but God knows And God controls that hard time. It's not an accident. It's on purpose according to his divine plan for you. And God will meet you here. And you will know God better because of the hard time that you're going through. And then God will fulfill all of his promises to you. Just like he did for Hagar, for Sarah, for Abram, for all of his people. But in the meantime, you need to wait. Where is the Lord in our times? We need to wait. Wait on the Lord. Trust him every moment of every day. And in the meantime, I hope that Psalm 130 can be a comfort to you. I'm going to read it, and we're going to sing it. I can hear... She didn't say it. It's not a psalm of Hagar. 
but I think it is what God was drawing out from her. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for, for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, O risen King Church, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. With him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel. He will redeem his people. He will redeem you and me and all who trust in him. He will redeem and rescue and save us from all our iniquities. Wait on the Lord. Worship team, you guys come up and join me. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing the truths of this as well. Lord God, you, you are right with us in suffering. You know um, you see, you send those things, you control them, you meet us there. Thank you for your grace in Christ that we know that you care and that you meet us and may you be glorified in these things. Please teach us to wait on you and to trust you. Amen. Would you stand? Let's sing.